of all, are we aware of him and mindful of him? And then are we pursuing him? Draw nigh to God and he will what? He will draw nigh to you. And uh, thankful for that ministry. We'll dismiss our children that take part of Children's Church at this time. You can make your way up here to the front and out by the piano. And I do just want to remind our couples that tonight after the service, we're going to have a Sweethearts Fellowship. Um, you can see a note there in the bulletin about what you can bring. But uh, we'll be back in the cafeteria decorated for Valentine's Day, kind of finishing a Valentine's celebration. So um, I've been asked, what does it mean to be a couple? If you're married, you qualify. All right. So if you're married without reservation, um, come and join us. Um, somebody said, well, can, can serious couples that aren't married come? And I was like, well, then how do you get into the serious couple designation? I'm thinking of these students, you know, I'm, I will say, if, you know, like you've been to lunch in the dining common once, but you're just sure you're going to marry that guy, that probably doesn't qualify yet as a serious relationship, all right? So <clears throat> uh, you can decide beyond that, those of you that are not yet married but are together, we'd, we'd certainly be glad to extend an invitation to that as well. But all of you couples that trust you can come back. It'll be after our service back in the, in the cafeteria area. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 4, Matthew chapter 4, uh, in our Bibles this morning, and last week, if you were here, you know that we finished our study of the devil's temptations of Jesus, and that study brought us right up to chapter 4 and verse 11, and you might recall again that the gospel records indicate that this period of temptation came right on the heels of the public commissioning of our Lord at his baptism, and the temptations were part of the preparation of him for his ministry. And after reporting that the Lord was victorious, and in verse number uh, 12, it's as if, uh, verse 10, I'm sorry, of chapter 4, it's as if the Lord just expels the devil, get out of here, and the angels come and minister to him in verse number 11. Verse 12 um, gives a report of one period of the Lord's ministry. So we've been preparing for this. He was commissioned, and then the temptations are all part of even further preparation of him for ministry. And now Matthew moves to a reporting on one particular uh, part of the Lord's ministry in this region of Galilee. And we're going to read as we begin uh, from verse 12 down through verse 17. And we'll just read this entire section. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. On Friday in August of 1751, there was a group of Indians that gathered in a meeting house in what was then a frontier town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts. A tall white man of English descent named Jonathan Edwards had been settled in that community for just barely uh, more than a week, and he stood to address this um, group of Indians and to explain his purpose in coming to their region. And he chose that day to dwell on the themes of light and darkness. He started by establishing the truth that all men start at the same entry point in terms of a man and his creator God. He said Englishmen start at the same point as the Indians. He spoke of his own ancestors as a community of people who in their past were in a very darkened condition without the light of the word of God and they were living their lives as it were just stumbling around in the dark. And then he told them of how God in his mercy had more recently seen fit to shine a, a most powerful light into their lives through the ministry and abundant ministry of the word of God. And Edwards went on to testify to the group that was assembled before him that it was his intention in coming to their settlement to bring with him to them that same light. And it's in his intention to bring light to people in darkness that he resembled the ministry that Jesus is now embarking on in the passage before us. What is not immediately apparent to us, though, as we're moving into verse 12, is that there's actually a considerable time gap that has elapsed between verses 11 and 12. And to help you have some grasp of this when you go back and read here in the future, I do want to encourage, if you don't have it, to put John chapter 4 and verse 3 in your margin. And it's really, you can put John 4 verse 3 right in connection to, verse, to, to Matthew 4, 12. And, and please don't turn to John now, because for our purpose this morning, it, it's, it really is most important that you just know where John, Matthew 4, 12 intersects with John's record. And again, that reference that I've given to you is John 4 and verse 3. And it just tells us there of the Lord's leaving Judea and heading back into Galilee, which is the tie-in here in verse number 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And what that means for us is that any public ministry that was recorded in John up to this point actually has to come right here between verses 11 and 12 in Matthew 4. And again, without you turning, I can just, I can draw your attention to some big developments. After the temptations, uh, which were ended here, John records that Jesus went back to where John the Baptist was ministering in Judea. And you can remember that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he cried out and pointed to him and said, what? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. 
on one occasion in the Gospel of John chapter 2, again coming between verses 11 and 12 here, Jesus had gone into Jerusalem and he's right up there in the temple precincts and he rebuked the blasphemous merchandising that was taking place in what was supposed to be a house of what? A house of worship. But he said, you have made it a den of thieves. In John chapter 3, you remember the record of a religious leader named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus alone and he comes to him by night because of fear of what the a religious establishment would do. And, and, and he asked the Lord for counsel. And the Lord said to him, you have to be born again by the Spirit of God if you're going to see heaven. And then, all of, while all of those things happen, again between verses 11 and 12, we're actually told in John 4 that Jesus went through Samaria. When he left Judea in the south and he started to head up into Galilee in the north, he went through Samaria, which was in between those two provinces. And he reached out to a Samaritan woman at the what? At the well in Samaria. And, and she and many others believed on him through her testimony. And, and so I've just kind of highlighted one incident from each of those chapters to give us a, a bit more feel of where we are in terms of the Lord's life and ministry. And when Jesus now goes from Judea through Samaria, verse 12, he departs into Galilee. Where is the first place that he went? In terms of what town did he go to first in Galilee? And when you look at verse 13, we have a reference to him leaving where? Okay, he left Nazareth, which is an indication that the first stop he made in Galilee was in what village? It was the village of Nazareth. And, and that shouldn't be surprising to us because we've already learned in Matthew that Nazareth was his what? What would you say today? Nazareth was Jesus, it was his hometown. All right, that's where he had grown up since he was probably a toddler into, again, almost 30 years old. Now, Matthew just says that he left Nazareth. But again, without turning this morning, I want to give you another reference to put right beside this one, right beside now, verse 13. That reference is Luke chapter 4. And verses 16 to 30. And if you got to Luke 4, you would be able to get to it. But go ahead and put Luke 4, 16 to 30. And, and again, you don't need to turn there. But that account actually reports on what happened when Jesus went to Nazareth. Matthew skipped over this account. But when Jesus went to Nazareth and he started ministering, in fact, he was reading Old Testament scripture about the Messiah. And he's claiming that that Old Testament scripture was being fulfilled in who? In himself. So he goes back to his hometown. He takes the Old Testament scripture. He tells them it's being fulfilled in him. And the people basically respond by saying, oh, come on. Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, we all saw him grow up. And now he's trying to claim to be the Messiah they say he's lost his mind. In fact, 
they were so opposed to it, they were like, let's get him out of here. And they were actually taking steps to throw him off the edge of a cliff. And Jesus narrowly escaped their attempt to take his life. So, from one vantage point, we fill in a little bit of some of that tension between Jesus and the religious leadership back in Judea. And then we have clear statement about the rejection of Jesus from his own hometown people in Nazareth. And, and from one vantage point, it seems as if his leaving Judea and his going to Nazareth and then continuing to move on and settle in Capernaum was actually the result of the rejection of people and the opposition that he's facing to this point. From, from just the perspective of human activity, the rejection of, of men, of Jesus' teaching, was a contributing factor to the Lord settling in what we have here in verse 13, to his settling in Capernaum. But what we're seeing here from Matthew alone is that Matthew doesn't even mention the human element. We can piece that together from John and we can piece it together from Luke and even from Mark. We can piece it together from other gospel accounts. But Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew here just skips right over the human rejection that contributed to the Lord's going to Capernaum. And instead... Matthew just points to whose hand in all of this? Matthew just points to the hand of God. Because when Matthew says, here's why Jesus ended up in Capernaum in verse 13, he says in verse 14 that Jesus got there because of what? Look at verse 14. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by who? Which was spoken by, we would say today, Isaiah. All right, Matthew says that the Lord Jesus got to Capernaum because of something that God said through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before this time. So the citizens of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, they had only recently rejected the Lord in his ministry, but the Lord's arrival, leaving Nazareth, going to Capernaum, was something that God the Father had purposed at a minimum hundreds of years in the past. Now, you may be sitting there saying, all right, that's all nice information. Does that have anything to do with me? And, and brethren, I think if you stop to pause about where you're at, and I'm, in, most, in some cases, I'm not talking about just the fact that you're sitting at Faith Baptist Church in Easley this morning, but I'm talking about where you are in life in general right now. Your circumstance. I, I, think, I think most of us can, can look back on choices that we have made and how they brought about where we're at. I mean, some of the choices we have made um, have been good choices. Choices of, of obedience, as best as we knew how, and faith. And, and, and they have contributed to some of the blessings that we are experiencing and, and ministry opportunities that we enjoy right now. But we can also, if you're like me at least, you can likely reflect on some decisions where 
where disobedience and regretfully, in some cases, unbelief and even just character flaws have, have contributed to some of the hardships we're experiencing and, and maybe even some limited ministry. But you can probably also think not just of your own decisions and choices, but you can think of decisions that others have made. Some good and some not so good. But in, in some cases, others have made decisions of faith and obedience, and they have profoundly impacted your life for the good. In some cases, people have really uh, invested in you and have shown you special love. And it's been a source of blessing, and it's part of where you're at right now. You can probably also think, though, that alongside of that, in some cases, quite frankly, have been the mistakes of others. I, maybe just outright offenses of others. And in some cases, other people rejecting you is part of how you have gotten to where you're at right now. And there can be no doubting that the scripture does witness to those facts. We've seen that as we piece it together. But the scripture also does witness to the fact that, that the actions of men, I can even say it this way, the free acts of men, they never operate outside the boundaries of the sovereign hand of God. And, and what he has determined to use to put us right on the very spot on the globe that he wants us to be in. Part of my devotional reading is just finishing up the drama involved in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis. I mean, Joseph ended up where he did in Egypt through just almost unthinkable treachery of his own brothers. He ended up where he ended up in part because of the favor that he ended up gaining in the eyes of his slaveholder boss. But he ended up where he ended up in part through the false accusations of his boss's wife. He ended up where he ended up through the forgetfulness of a fellow prisoner that finally actually had his memory jogged in connection with the dream of the Pharaoh of the land. The, the famine in the entire region brought those same long-lost brothers who'd been so treacherous against him, the famine in the region brought those same brothers to stand before him, and it had been so long, they didn't even know it was him. And when he eventually made himself known, they trembled in fear before him, and he kept pointing to the providential hand of God. He made himself known in Genesis 45. You don't need to turn there, but verse 5, I highlighted him when I read through it earlier this week. He said, God sent me here. And in verse 7, two verses later, he said, God sent me here. And in the very next verse, he said, you guys didn't send me here. God sent me here. And in verse number 9, he said, and God gave me this position. 
And the last chapter of all that drama is actually in tomorrow's reading for me, but I peeked ahead. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, now dad Jacob is dead, and now they are really sure that he's just being nice to us because dad was alive, and now dad's not here, and we better appeal to Joseph to have mercy. And when Joseph started talking to them, he said, you were thinking of doing me evil. I know it. I know that's the human part of it. But he said, God was thinking of doing good to many people. Now, brethren, it is critical for your spiritual health and your spiritual well-being that you live with this kind of assurance. And though perhaps there are profound mysteries in the whole thing that your mind just can't get around, how could God use you know, that choice and those people and what they did and, and all the things that have been part of it, how can God use all of that? And, and there are mysteries in it, but you better live with this assurance that God uses the free acts of men, but behind it is the providential hand of God, and they operate within boundaries. You better live with that assurance because that's what God has said again and again and again in the Scripture. Proverbs 16 and verse 9, a man's heart deviseth his way. And that's not talking about a negative. I mean, a man, a man does research, and he prepares, and he plans, and he budgets, and he pros and cons, and all of that. A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his way. The Lord directs and establishes his steps. He closes doors, and he opens doors, and he moves. And just a few chapters later in Proverbs 21 and verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as rivers of water, and he turns it wherever he will. So think about those two statements together. As you give thought and prayer and planning to your way, the Lord will direct and establish your steps. And at the same time, the heart of others who makes decisions that affects your life is in his hands also. And he providentially superintends all of it. And if you and I fail to live with that assurance, we may very well almost stay in something of a battle with God about where I'm at and why I'm here and how long do I have to be here and, and when is this ever going to change. And very potentially bring a whole host of unhealthy dynamics. And if I go back to, again, the, the, the setting with the Lord Jesus himself and this ministry. You know what happens when people wrestle with God long enough about all of that kind of thing? At some level, in some cases, people just throw in the towel about ministry and usefulness. And just stop attempting to do much of anything for the Lord at all. One man in our previous ministry that had, had much gifting and, quite frankly, much insight that most people didn't even know. But he'd, had, he'd certainly had some bad decisions on his part and others. And he just said to me, I, I know what my role is. My role is to sit in that pew and pay my tithes and keep my mouth shut. And I just said, no, no. It isn't. 
I understand there's impact. There's limiting, there's adjusting, there's changing. But you need to see that you're where you're at under the superintendence of the providential hand of God. And he's got ministry for you now. Maybe changed, maybe different, but he's got something for you to do now. I started our message by referring to Jonathan Edwards. Before he moved out to that frontier post as a missionary to the Indians, Edwards had been a very useful and even celebrated pastor in an influential church. Even before the Great Awakening, that was the case. But then revival broke out in Edwards' ministry. And in their community, they saw over 300 converted to Christ in a very short amount of time. And when I talk about 300 converts, it wasn't just people that walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. They, they reflected on that many months later, these people had the evidence of being wrought upon by the Spirit of God. I'm using his own wording. And it wasn't just an Edwards community. Edwards was invited to speak in other communities, and revival broke out in multiple locations through Edwards' preaching. People were talking about him on both sides of the Atlantic, Old England and New England. But then, within a few years, Edwards and his own church came into conflict with each other over multiple issues, including who would be admitted to the membership of a local church. And Edwards insisted on the authority of Scripture that those that would be admitted must have a profession of personal saving faith and a relationship with Christ. And many in the church wanted to continue a practice that basically involved membership being inherited and derived from having been the recipient of infant baptism. And there were months of controversy working its way out. There's a few other issues. It's almost never just one. And there's a few others that got brought into all of it. And Edwards Church, at a church business meeting, voted to dismiss him as their pastor. He ended up being the first president of the College of New Jersey, which is today, which is today Princeton Seminary, Princeton College of Seminary. This was not some... You know, guy that's just getting him out of here, this mess. But that church that was the central place of the Great Awakening voted to dismiss their own pastor. And that was a significant trigger to Edwards serving as a missionary to those Indians and being, as he believed, a bearer of the light to them. Brethren, Edwards' story has been duplicated many times in the history of the Christian church. When the ministry of a faithful messenger has been rejected, God uses the rejection to thrust that messenger out to reach others that are in darkness. And wherever, whatever God has used to direct your steps, through whatever, again, combination of influences and factors, Wherever he has put you, embrace the fact that you are there 
in his will and assume there are people in darkness right there that he wants to use you to bring the light of Christ to and the truth of Christ to. And that doesn't mean that God will never move any of us from where we are right now. He clearly moved the Lord Jesus. He moved Jonathan Edwards. And he does move his people. But do you know that you and I will never really be in a place to discern the movement of God if we are resistant to serving where we are now? To being a light in the darkness that is around us right where we are. To proclaiming the light of the scripture to those in darkness. We're not in a place to really see the movement of God until I just say, I'm going to take advantage of where I'm at and be all in where I'm at and proclaim the light to those in darkness. And I need to do that until the day he moves me. Now, I keep mentioning this, this imagery of light in darkness because verse 16 here in Matthew 4 tells us that when Jesus arrived in that region, that was the state of the people. The people, verse 16, which sat in darkness. And we need to pause to be reminded that it is the witness of the scripture that every man's condition, apart from a personal knowledge of God, is darkness. Um, Ephesians 4 and verse 18 speaks of those having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Samuel led us this morning in reading already that Colossians 1 and verse 13, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's what it takes because God's viewpoint of human history and the condition of the human race is that the whole world lies in darkness. And in the case of this region in Galilee with these parameters that have been mentioned, um, we could go back into the Old Testament. I'm not doing that this morning, but we could go back and really see their history. Some specific statements of the fact that they had rejected the true God and they had chose the idols of the people that surrounded them. Their darkness was self-inflicted. And every man must be delivered from the darkness that is in our own heart by virtue of being born a sinner. And then it's not just our own sin that contributes to our darkness. But it's the work of the devil himself that adds to it. And I do want to have you turn to 2 Corinthians 4 because of several connections that we want to see. Those people were in darkness that was self-afflicted because of their sin, were born in a state of darkness. And in addition to all of that, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, notice says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded, the minds of them which believe not, lest the what? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now you just pause here. If that's the case, look, if our sin brings darkness and the devil works to keep the sinner in the dark, then what hope is there for any of us? 
Well, the hope is the work of God that the apostle goes on to speak of. Notice in verse, uh, well, we'll just continue reading in verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, and the means of God doing this work, of shining the light of His glory in Christ into our sin-darkened hearts, the means of Him doing that is, verse 5, preaching Christ. The means of Him doing that, if you come down to the end of verse number 2, and verse 2, I'm backing up, we've renounced hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth. Or just that open declaring of the truth. Listen, brethren, there is in the proclamation of the truth of the Scripture concerning Jesus Christ and just opening your Bible and proclaiming it. There is in that the means that the Spirit of God uses to shine the brightness of the glory of the person and work of Christ into a heart and supernaturally drive out the darkness. And bring the light of salvation. And if you're going to openly declare the truth, it won't all just be positive, inspirational, feel-good messages. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus brought the light to that darkened region, and he started preaching... What did he preach? I know you can flip back if you can get there quickly, but I think you can recall it if you, if you don't want to try to flip back. When Jesus started preaching, Matthew 4, verse 17 said that Jesus preached the same message that John the Baptist had been preaching. And that message was, repent for the what? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message was repent and submit to the authority of King Jesus. Now, brethren, openly proclaiming the truth involves pointing to sin and calling on people to turn from it and turn to Jesus. This is part of taking the light to the darkness. Taking the light to the darkness is not going to involve skipping over sin and not mentioning it and just giving everybody positive messages. No, it has to confront the darkness and declare what the darkness is and show how it's had a grip. And then point them to their need for God to do for themselves what they cannot do. And to dispel that through Christ. I want to ask you this morning... What human messenger, or maybe, maybe you can think of a combination of messengers that God used to proclaim his truth to you, to the end of reaching you in your darkness and dispelling that darkness and delivering you from that darkness? Can you think of that instrument that God used? Maybe the combination of instruments. And you know the instrument didn't do the work because that took the supernatural power of God 
but you also know that someone came to you in your darkened state and they declared to you the light of the truth. And in some cases, they did it again and again and again and again. And I want to urge you this morning to thank God, first of all, for his work, but to thank him for using that instrument. But then, brethren, I want to encourage you to recognize that wherever you are, at least for right now, where you are is the place that God wants to use you to be a light bearer to others in darkness. Yield to his hand in this matter of where you are right now and all of what's put you here. Yield to to him in this matter and be a light and bear witness to the light that is in Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to take a moment to do what I've just really exhorted you to do, and that is to first of all thank God that he did the work that only he could do. Some of you know what it is to look back and just marvel at your darkened condition. And right now, even, it's embarrassing at one level, but it's humbling to just acknowledge how blind you were for so long. But God, in his mercy, opened your eyes and dispelled the darkness and shined the light of his sun into your heart. And thank him for that. Thank him for the instrument that was faithful. Combination of instruments that he favored you with. But then again, would you just, before him, as a matter of faith, and contentment. Say, Lord, I don't know all of what you're doing and putting me where I'm at. I don't even know how long I'm here. But I do know that if you put me here, there's a ministry that you want me to have. And help me to be about that ministry.